Okay, welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. I'd like to welcome our newest members, David, Johnny, Deborah, Kate, Rab, Gail, John, Michael, and Tim. Members help keep this project going, which I really appreciate, and as a result, they get little members-only bonuses. And today is Mother's Day in America, so happy Mother's Day, Mom. I'm really sorry that after you spent all that time making a Batman costume for me when I was seven years old, at the last minute, I decided I wanted to be the Joker. That was kind of a move. Anyway... Now, I thought I'd let you know that we've got a book club and a movie club starting up on the forums, which sounds like fun. Both clubs are at thebritishhistorypodcast.com slash forum in the entertainment section. And right now, they're choosing their first material, so you should go and join in with your suggestions, and maybe they'll pick your book or movie. All right, so this episode is a little late. It could be that I was struggling with how best to tell the story of Hengist and Horsa, while also explaining the archaeological and epistemological aspects that relate to that story. And that would be a reasonable assumption. However, loyal listeners might have noticed that the FA Cup final didn't go the way I would have liked it to have gone. Could that have an impact on this episode? I'll let you decide. Now, while I'm on the subject, apparently Anastasia is bent out of shape that I support the greatest club in the world. Look, Anna. Can I call you Anna? Anna, whenever you're ready to support a truly legendary team, well, legendary when they aren't playing hungover, apparently, we'll accept you with open arms. Come on over. It's better on this side of the pitch. All right, that's enough about football, and let's get on to history. So, let's start our story with a date. The date of the first serious arrival of Germanic mercenaries, the Saxons. Of course, we're already familiar with the Saxons. We've already learned about their raids along the eastern shore of Britannia, for example. We've discussed the Comus Latoris Saxoniki, the Count of the Saxon Shore. But up until this point, we've been talking about these Germans simply as foreign raiders. They weren't characters in the story, but rather they were like the shark in Jaws. They were an event that was occurring, but that's about to change for us. So the works attributed to Nennius place the start date for Saxon Britain at 428. That would be 18 years after the pullout of Rome from Britannia. Conversely, Bede puts the date at 449. As you know, both sources were writing a very long time after the events we're talking about, and Gildas doesn't give us a date, and he was the only one who was reasonably close to the events, so we're just going to have to be comfortable in not knowing. But for the sake of ease, let's go with Bede's date. And actually, I have a reason for suspecting that Bede's date could be closer to the truth than Nennius, but I'll get to that later. And actually, all of this might be getting a little ahead of ourselves, so let's set the stage for this arrival. Rome had already withdrawn, and into that vacuum came the Irish, who were known as the Scots, and the Picts. The Britons were wholly unprepared for this onslaught. Not only did they lack adequate arms, but they also lacked the individuals of fighting age to take to the defenses. Years of imperial struggles had left the island looted of potential soldiers. And this opportunity would not be wasted by the Picts and the Scots. We're told that in the face of this, the Britons abandoned the wall, presumably Hadrian's wall, and fled from their cities. But wherever they ran, they were followed by the merciless barbarians. Gildas tells us of how the barbarians inflicted, quote, cruel massacres, end quote, upon the scattered Britons. As lambs by butchers, so the unhappy citizens are torn in pieces by the enemy, insomuch that their life might be compared to that of wild animals. Gildas. 
Starvation became commonplace as they had been forced to abandon their homes, their fields, and their possessions. These were civilized people. As far as they were concerned, they were Romans. They were not equipped for this sort of life. The hardy lifestyle of the ancient Celts was long gone. Chariots had been replaced by baths and public forums. So what were they to do in such a circumstance? Well, some could hunt, but it seems that many turned to theft and pillaging because they had no real survival skills for the situation they were in. And so the devastation that was wrought upon the land by the foreigners was now aggravated by the Britons themselves as they tried to scrape a living out however they could, usually in fairly brutal ways. Soon, the whole country was stripped of resources, short of what the occasional hunter might have been able to catch. And it was in this situation that the Britons wrote to Aetius, who Gildas called Agetius. Aetius was essentially the last vestige of Roman power in the West. He was in his third consulship, and was actually in a particularly good position to be able to aid the Britons if he wanted to. Gildas recorded the plea of the Britons, quote, to Agitus, in his third consulship, come the groans of the Britons. The barbarians drive us to the sea. The sea drives us upon the barbarians. By one or the other of these two modes of death, we are either killed or drowned. And for these, they have no aid. In the meantime, the severe and well-known famine presses the wandering and vacillating people which compels many of them, without delay, to yield themselves as conquered to the bloodthirsty robbers, in order to have a morsel of food for the renewal of life. End quote. Gildas is telling us of the brutality, slaughter, famine, and pitiful subjugation that the Britons are enduring. But Aetius, despite his renown and power, was unable to provide the Britons with any relief. He was far too busy fighting with Attila and his Hunnic army to be able to spare the time to rescue the Britons. And so the Britons quickly came to realize that they were completely alone. In their sorrow, many submitted to the barbarians, but others chose to hide in the woods and mountains, engaging in a guerrilla war against the invaders. Over time, they would gather their numbers and make surprise attacks upon their enemies, inflicting substantial losses, hearkening back to the ancient Celtic method of war that was so useful against the Romans. These losses began to mount, and soon the barbarians, who had been laying Britannia to waste for years, were finally expelled by the Britons. The victory was so great, in fact, that the barbarians didn't trouble the Britons for some time. And with that peace came a period of great luxury and debauchery. Gildas writes that, quote, The boldness of the enemy quieted for a time, but not the wickedness of our people. The enemy withdrew from our countrymen, but our countrymen withdrew not from their sins, end quote. And soon thereafter came a great pestilence, which Gildas appears to have seen as divine retribution. This disease was so virulently lethal that there were not enough people to even bury the dead. What they did with these unburied dead is not mentioned, but I can't imagine it helped with the spread of the disease. It sounds serious. Also pretty gross. But not so gross as to keep the barbarians away. Oh yeah, the barbarians were back. And now we have a proud tyrant that was unnamed by Gildas, but who Bede names Vortigern, which, by the way, means proud tyrant. And Vortigern has an idea. Why not hire some Saxons to fight the Picts? What could go wrong? 
Gildas writes of how the Saxons are hated by both God and men, and how they were welcomed onto the island like wolves in order to fight the northern nations. But Vortigern was probably thinking, well, what can we do? We need somebody to fight these damn Picts, and the Saxons are well-known warriors, so come on over here and take them out, please. In speaking of Vortigern, Gildas says, quote, What utter depth of darkness of soul! What hopeless and cruel dullness of mind! End quote. As you might have gathered, Gildas thought that inviting the Saxons over was something of a tactical error. So, in 449, the Saxons, or Angles, it seems that Bede doesn't draw much of a distinction between the two people, arrived at Ipwinna's float, probably Ebb's fleet, in three longships. They were under the command of two brothers, Hengist and Horsa, along with Hengist's son, Aesk. These men had a striking lineage. Their father was Witgils, son of Witta, son of Wecta, son of Woden. Woden, by the way, is the same as Odin. Yes, that Odin. The All-Father, Thor's dad, looks like Anthony Hopkins, you know, motherfucking Woden. Well, under the command of apparently descendants of gods, it didn't take the Saxons long to defeat the Picts. Frankly, it was pretty easy for them to beat the Picts, who were used to fighting the weak and cowardly Romano-British. So the Saxons sent word back home regarding the weakness of the Britons and the fertility of their land. And pretty soon, a sizable fleet of Saxons arrived. The British struck a deal with those Saxons and allowed them to have lands to inhabit if they would agree to fight for the Britons. Part of the deal was that the Britons would, of course, pay for the service of those mercenary Germans. All in all, it was a pretty good deal for the mercenaries, and so the three most powerful nations of Germany immediately developed an interest. The Saxons of Old Saxony came and eventually established the East Saxons, Essex, the South Saxons, Sussex, and the West Saxons, Wessex. The Jutes came from the northern part of the Danish peninsula, and they occupied the Isle of Wight and Kent. And the Angles came from the land of Anglia, and they established the East Angles, East Anglia, the Midland Angles, the Mercians, and all of the Northumbrians. This isn't the first time you've heard of the Angles in this podcast, by the way. Only last time I referred to them as Sweeby, which was the name the Romans used when they spoke of the confederacy of northern tribes that crossed the Rhine along with the Alans and Vandals in 406. And as you might recall, they kicked a little butt. So these guys were tough. Soon these nations were coming over in great numbers. Eventually they began to encroach upon the Britons and become hostile to their landlords and allies. They began to demand ever-increasing amounts of provisions. They backed up their demands with a threat. If they weren't provided with these ever-increasingly large payments, they would break the treaty and lay waste to the island. Basically, they were saying, you can pay us, or we can take what you want. It's your choice, but you probably should pay us. This, by the way, was a lesson that civilizations have learned time and time again through history. Mercenaries are never a good idea. Well, here's the thing. The Britons were either unable or unwilling to pay the new rates. And it turns out that the Germans weren't bluffing. They pillaged, looted, burned, and destroyed everything from the East Coast to the West Coast. The Germans raised private buildings, raised public buildings, butchered priests at their altars, slaughtered poor people, slaughtered rich people. No one was spared. The only thing that awaited the Britons was fire and the sword. And the dead? Well, they were left right where they were killed. 
there wasn't even any effort to bury the slain. Those who sought refuge in the woods or in the forts that peppered the countryside were found and butchered, their corpses left in great heaps. Any Briton who sought to submit themselves to the Germans might well have been killed on the spot, but if he or she survived, a life of slavery awaited the poor fool. Many who were able to flee Britannia did so. Those who could not and escaped the initial slaughter spent their days in hunger, hiding from the roving bands of Germans, and knew that any moment could be their last. Depending on the source, the Britons either offered no resistance or made small efforts to resist the raiders. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle mentions some battles, but it was written about 300 years after the fact, so we need to take these dates and events with a grain of salt. But according to the Chronicle, in 455, Vortigern fought Hengist and Horsa at Agalis Threp. This might have been Aylesford. During this battle, Horsa, brother of Hengist, was killed. He was buried in Kent, and his grave was marked with a monument bearing his name. Well, that is if you believe the Chronicle. So let's say this. After an unspecified period of time, and potentially a few battles, the Germans, having crushed the natives and looted the land, decided to return to their homeland and their own settlements. By measure, the Britons came out of hiding and began to recover from the ravaging of their land. In this time, a rather unassuming man came forward. Gildas said that he was of the Roman race, and that his parents had worn the purple. Now Gildas, who had the irritating habit of being generally sparing with names, broke his pattern and tells us that this man was called Ambrosius Aurelianus. And we're told that Aurelianus led the Britons in battle against the invading Germans. Sometimes the Britons would win, sometimes the enemy would. The tides of war shifted rapidly back and forth, and the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle actually provides us with some of those battles. But again, beware of the dates and events in general, since the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle is hardly an accurate resource for this period. But there might be some grains of truth in there, so we're going to talk about them briefly. So here we go. It says, in 457, Hengist and Aesk, remember he was Hengist's son, fought the Britons at Crecan Ford, which might have been Crayford, and killed 4,000 men, and then the Britons fled from Kent to London. In 465, Hengist and Aesk fought the Britons at Whippeda's Float. There they killed 12 British chiefs and lost only one of their thanes, a man named Whippid. Thus, the place was probably named for the stream where Whippid was killed. In 473, they fought the Britons once again at an unnamed place and took a great deal of spoils. In 477, Ayla and his sons Caimen, Lenking, and Kisa landed three ships at Caimenus Ora, which was south of Selzy Bill, where they killed a bunch of Britons and drove them into Andrides Lake, which was probably the Sussex Weld. In 485, Ayla fought the Britons at a stream called Mercredes Berna. In 488, Aesk, son of Hengist, became king of Kent and remained king for 24 years. It should be noted that the chronicle sometimes replaces Aesk with Oisk, so it's hardly an authoritative source for this. I mean, it was written 300 years after these events. So like I said, even though there are dates included here, don't mistake that for accuracy. But according to the chronicle, Aesk, son of Hengist, became king of Kent. In 491, Ayla and his son Kisa besieged Andrade's Chester, which was the Roman fort next to Pevensey, and killed everyone inside. Ayla went on to found the kingdom of the South Saxons, Sussex. 
And actually, Ayla was the first king to be recognized by Bede as having overlordship over all the English south of the Humber. So Ayla was a big deal, and he was operating in the late 5th century. The Chronicle also tells us that Churdich arrived at Churdici's Aura in 495 and fought the Britons that he found there. According to Aethelwerd, it wouldn't be for another six years before he would be able to conquer Wessex and take the throne. Now, the arrival of Churdich and his taking of Wessex is fairly significant as he is the legendary founder of the House of Wessex, to whom even Queen Elizabeth II traces her lineage to. Ultimately, though, it's important to keep in mind that this is the Dark Ages, and our sources are really sketchy, especially when it comes to the battles of Hengist, Aesk, Ayla, and Churdich. The truth of it is, we don't know if these battles actually happened, and if they did, when they happened. But the picture that is being painted here is one of sustained battle and a continual flow of migrating Germanic warbands landing along the eastern shore of Britannia. Something else we're not sure of is the extent of which Ambrosius Aurelianus was involved. But he was important enough to be named by Gildas, so that's a mark in his favor, and he seems to have been at the center of military operations of the Britons. So there's a good chance that he probably was involved in at least some of the battles, if they happened. But one thing we can be reasonably certain of is that there was a huge battle at around 500, at a location we haven't managed to find yet. It's referred to by both Gildas and Bede, which isn't completely reliable, but it's really the best we can hope for. So at around 500, Aurelianus led the Britons in a great battle at Mons Badonicus. Fans of Arthur might know this fight under a different name. It was Arthur's 12th fight, the Battle of Baden Hill. Now, we don't have any descriptions of this battle unless we resort to Arthurian legends written hundreds of years later. We don't know how many people were involved. We don't know who was there. We don't know if Ayla was there. It's possible. It's also possible that Churdich was fighting there, but that's less likely. Anyway, whoever was present and however many soldiers fought were told that the Britons were victorious and the invaders were slaughtered. Following that victory, the wars with the foreigners had ceased, and we're told that there was a peace for 40 years. Sort of. While the foreign wars had ended, domestic civil wars continued. And the cities, which had been ravaged by the Germans, largely remained abandoned and decaying. Britannia had been permanently changed in the last half of the 5th century. So that's the story as we know it. There are a few unbelievable bits that come along hundreds and hundreds of years after the events would have taken place, and I left those bits out. But basically, we've got the Britons under assault by the Picts and the Irish, and eventually turning to the Saxons for help. The Saxons come over in huge numbers and, according to Bede, even abandoned whole villages to make the trip. For a while, they served the Britons, fighting the Picts and establishing settlements. Eventually, there is a dispute over payment, which sparked a war. The Saxons ravaged Britannia and then resumed their raids. The Britons reformed under the command of Ambrosius Aurelianus and fought the Saxons, and the war was uncertain for both sides for quite some time. And during that period, the founders of several Anglo-Saxon houses arrived on the island. And then, at around 500, there was the Battle at Mons Badonicus. Baden Hill, where Aurelianus defeated the Saxons and the invasions stopped and the civil wars began. That's it. That's the legend. So how much of this is real and how much is myth? Well, as with most things from this period, that's a subject of fierce debate. I mean, there are those who claim that there wasn't even an Anglo-Saxon invasion at all. 
that the shifts in culture and language were the result of cultural bleed rather than invasion. The idea goes that everywhere that you find a pair of Levi's doesn't mean that it's somewhere that was invaded by America. Typically, that sort of argument works much better in prehistory than it does in history, because here we have a written record. I mean, sure, it's an unreliable record, and I've talked at length about that, but it is a record. So next week, we're going to talk about the bits of evidence we have regarding this period, and try and work out how much of this legend is true, and see if we can figure out what really might have happened. Now, before I let you go, I'd like to give a shout-out to listener Carol. Carol is the mother of a friend of mine. Apparently, she found this podcast and has become an avid listener. So, Carol, I'm glad you're enjoying the show, and you've raised a pretty kick-ass daughter, just so you know. So, happy Mother's Day, and welcome to the show. And, of course, happy Mother's Day to all the mothers who are listening. Now, as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join us at Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash britishhistory. And you can reach us over on our website, thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And if you go over there, make sure to sign up for the forums. All you have to do is click the forum button, or you can go directly there at thebritishhistorypodcast.com slash forum. As always, thanks for listening.